Section 3 of Rational Theology and Christian Philosophy, Volume 1, by John Tullock. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 2. Course of Religious Opinion and Parties in England, 1500-1625. Part 1. The Reformation in England was singular amongst the great religious movements of the 16th century. It was the least heroic of them all, the least swayed by religious passion, or molded and governed by spiritual and theological necessities. From a general point of view, it looks at first little more than a great political change. The exigencies of royal passion and the dubious impulses of statecraft seem its moving and really powerful springs. But regarded more closely, we recognize a significant train both of religious and critical forces at work. The lust and avarice of Henry, the policy of Cromwell, and the vacillations of the leading clergy attract prominent notice. But there may be traced beneath the surface a widespread evangelical fervor amongst the people, and, above all, a genuine spiritual earnestness and excitement of thought at the universities. These higher influences preside at the first birth of the movement. They are seen in active operation long before the reforming task was taken up by the court and the bishops, and bring before us, in truth, one of the most interesting phases of that earlier and more purely biblical spirit of inquiry which almost everywhere ushered in the Reformation. In England, with the opening of the 16th century, we find genuine and decided manifestations of an awakening of religious life, of a new tone of religious thought, and of a desire to renovate the church and deliver theology and the study of the scriptures from the bondage of scholasticism. Collet and Tyndale are the most conspicuous representatives of this early movement. The first, initiated it by his lectures on St. Paul at Oxford, and his active cooperation with Erasmus in the promotion of the new learning. The second carried it on by his self-denying devotion and persevering labors in the English translation of the scriptures till the year of his martyrdom, 1536. Around these names there are others less distinguished, such as Bilney and Frith, all earnest students of scripture, and all animated by an enlightened reforming zeal drawn from its pages. The spirit of this movement was at once highly rational and evangelical. It is impossible to read Collet or Tyndale without recognizing that a deep-seated love of truth and vital power of divine faith moved them in all they did. Not less than either Luther or Calvin, they owned the reality of the evangelical principle, of the necessity of penetrating beyond all means of grace or accessories of devotion to the very life of communion with God in Christ. Collet had learned from the study of his beloved St. Paul to look up from him to the wonderful majesty of Christ, and loyalty to Christ was the ruling passion of his life. Tyndale's whole being was inspired by the ardor of self-sacrifice for the holy evangel. But with all this evangelical enthusiasm and fire of spiritual zeal, there was in both an admirable sobriety, candor, and fairness of theological temper. They approached the study of Scripture with their minds thoroughly cleared of the old formal scholasticism, and desiring simply to read the divine meaning in its own light and purity. They fixed boldly upon the fact that it could only have one consistent meaning, in contrast to the scholastic nonsense of a fourfold sense, literal, tropological, allegorical, and anagogical. Twenty doctors, said Tyndale, will, quote, expound one text twenty ways as children make descant upon plain song, then our sophisters, with an antitheme of half an inch, will draw out a thread of nine days long. Yea, thou shalt find enough that will preach Christ and prove whatsoever point of the faith thou wilt, as well out of a fable of Ovid or any other poet, as out of St. John's Gospel or Paul's epistles. Collet, in his lectures on the Romans, which Tyndale probably heard at Oxford in the first years of the century, at once threw aside all this scholastic trifling, 
and tried to bring his hearers face to face with the living mind of the apostle to a priest who came to him for some hints in his studies he said quote, open your book and we will see how many and what golden truths we can gather from the first chapter only of the epistle to the romans close quote. he loved to point out more after the manner of the nineteenth than the sixteenth century the personal traits in st paul's writings his vehemence of speaking which did not give him time to perfect his sentences the rare prudence and tact with which he balanced his words to meet the needs of the different classes addressed his modesty toleration self-denial and consideration for others and the reality of application there was in many of his sayings to the circumstances of the times he recognized even largely a principle of accommodation in scripture as in the mosaic account of the creation and st paul's statements about marriage he showed himself in his doctrinal conclusions independent of augustinianism and while emphasizing the necessity of divine grace kept clear of the absolute decree and the extreme tenet of the bondage of the will he came at last to find the true sum of christian theology in the simple facts of the apostles creed to the young theological students who quote, came to him in despair on the point of throwing up theological study altogether because of the vexed questions in which they found it involved and dreading lest they might be found unorthodox he was wont to say keep firmly to the bible and the apostles creed and let divines if they like dispute about the rest Close quote. tyndale if animated by a more profound and energetic evangelical feeling than collet was less liberal in his theology his leanings were augustinian even of a somewhat strong type yet he is almost equally clear and rational in his method of scriptural exposition scripture has but one sense he says which is the literal sense this literal sense is the root and ground of all Quote, there is no story seem it never so simple but that thou shalt find therein spirit and life and edification in the literal sense for it is god's scripture written for thy learning and comfort Close quote. of the sacraments he says quote, there is none other virtue in them than to testify and exhibit to the senses and understanding the covenants and promises made in christ's blood Close quote. and therefore where the sacraments or ceremonies are not rightly understood there they be clean unprofitable the same enlightened spirit is expressed in his general definition of the church quote, as the whole multitude of repenting sinners that believe in christ and put all their trust in the mercy of god feeling in their hearts that god for christ's sake loveth them Close quote. the rational spirit is sufficiently conspicuous in these early traces of the reformation in england and although it cannot be said in its subsequent development to have been true to the broader theology of collet yet it retains something of its original breadth this is seen in the doctrinal basis which it finally accepted the preparation of this basis may be said to begin with the termination of the earlier movement of reform and it lasted more or less actively for upwards of thirty years till the settlement of the articles in their present number and form in fifteen seventy one footnote the first series of ten articles date as far back as fifteen thirty six they were afterwards in fifteen fifty two expanded into forty two articles and finally in fifteen seventy one reduced to their present number of thirty nine and a footnote the theology of these articles is conciliatory and moderate the great question of predestination round which the theological thought of the reformation everywhere circulated is handled in a strictly scriptural manner without argument or any attempt to draw out the divine fact in its negative as well as its positive side the same thing may be said of the definitions in the tenth eleventh and twelfth articles on free will justification and good works an enlightened and clear perception of the truth and yet a cautious moderation both of thought and language characterize these significant propositions and if the darkened tone and exaggerations of augustinianism may be found in the thirteenth article this is almost the only case in which they occur 
nowhere was the theology of the sixteenth century capable of doing justice to the virtues of the heathens or of rising to the philosophic comprehension of the ancient alexandrian school in this respect as in some others the mere dominance of the western church had marred its theology and imparted to it an exclusive and negative character the definition of the church in the nineteenth article is strictly scriptural and strikes at the root of all illiberal ecclesiasticism and if the question of authority cannot be said to be fully cleared up in the article which follows it is yet stated with admirable balance the church has quote, authority in controversies of faith and yet it is not lawful for the church to ordain anything that is contrary to god's word written neither may it so expound one place of scripture that it be repugnant to another Close quote. in other words the church has power to settle its own doctrine but this power can only be legitimately exercised in consistency with scripture and reason the same moderate type of doctrine inclining upon the whole to augustinianism but free from many of its exaggerations is found to distinguish the chief english theologians of the sixteenth century from cranmer to hooker the homilies are mainly practical and where they diverge into doctrine they are not extreme and the homily on the reading of scripture is remarkable for the use of an expression which has since become prominent in connection with the advancement of a spirit of rational religious inquiry in scripture it says quote, is contained god's true word close quote. The most memorable exception to this fair and conciliatory doctrinism of the Church of England in the century of the Reformation is to be found in the famous Lambeth Articles, prepared at a conference called by Whitgift in the year 1595. Certain attacks had been made both at Oxford and Cambridge upon the tenet of predestination, the effect of which so much alarmed not only Whitgift but others of the bishops as to surprise them into the most intemperate and painful expression of predestinarianism anywhere to be found in the shape of a creed. Footnote there seems at this time to have been a simultaneous excitement at both the universities on the subject of calvinism a preacher of the name of barrett at oxford had got into difficulties with the university authorities and complained to the archbishop while at cambridge there was a keen controversy on the subject between the two professors of divinity whitgift himself stated to the queen that quote, the design of the lambeth articles was only to settle some propositions to be sent to cambridge for quieting some unhappy differences in that university close quote. the bishops of london and of bangor with the dean of ely and the queen's divinity professor at cambridge and others concurred with the archbishop in framing the articles the want of moderation so apparent in their language is attributed by sir philip warwick to fletcher bishop of london the archbishop of york dr hutton was unable to attend the conference but he afterwards approved of the positions laid down which he added quote, may be collected from the holy scriptures either expressly or by necessary consequence and also from the writings of st augustine End footnote it is true that almost every word of the nine lambeth propositions is to be found in the articles agreed upon by the archbishops and bishops and the rest of the clergy of ireland in sixteen fifteen and through these articles probably much of the phraseology passed into the westminster confession of faith but neither in the irish articles nor in the confession of faith are the logical inferences drawn from the primary predestinarian affirmation presented in so naked abrupt and coarse a manner while the ninth and concluding statement of the Lambeth series stands absolutely alone in its appalling simplicity. Footnote. It is briefly as follows, quote, It is not in the will and power of every man to be saved, close quote. End footnote. It may be an explanation of the Lambeth theology that all the successive propositions are strictly deducible from the initiative or major premise, which is no less virtually contained in the present thirty-nine articles. But this is no justification of the attempt to draw out such a theology into the form of a creed, nor does it really alter its harsh, unmoral, and, in the concluding negation, utterly unevangelical character. Happily for the Church of England, the Lambeth Articles never acquired any legal sanction. 
and no less happily they cannot be said to have exercised any influence upon the development of its theology it is not on the side of doctrine however that we must look for the most active display of rational thoughtfulness in the church of england at this time upon the whole there was in it as in the other churches of the reformation a disposition to accept without questioning the doctrines originally elaborated by the great teacher whose influence had been so powerful over the whole of the western church and which had been revived and systematized anew by luther and calvin the spirit of inquiry even in such a man as collet rather transcended or evaded augustinianism than disturbed it true to its practical character the questions which chiefly agitated the church of england and preserved the real life of thought in it were ecclesiastical rather than theological such questions for example as the sacraments orders and above all the government of the church this latter question which in a sense embraced the others was the stirring question of all the elizabethan age as it was destined in a significantly altered form to become that of the succeeding period one the early sacramentarian views of the church of england were substantially the same as those of the genevan or reformed churches cranmer although his language is not free from figure and perplexity taught that the eucharist is profitable and edifying as a means of grace from its spiritual suggestiveness not otherwise it serves to bring before the believing mind the sacrifice of christ in a vivid and comfortable manner and so helps it to realize the personal power of redeeming love but in and by itself it has no saving efficacy it is impossible in any other than a spiritual manner to eat the body or drink the blood of christ for the body of christ is in heaven and therefore cannot be also present in the bread or wine of the communion this phraseology according to christ's own witness means nothing else than to believe in him christ is present in his sacraments as he is present in his word when he worketh mightily by the same in the hearts of the hearers but in no other sense is he present in the communion or to be specially worshipped in it ridley held the same views and claims the authority of the fathers for them he as well as cranmer indeed used language which by itself would imply a higher meaning but this they did on the principle of ascribing to the sacrament or the sign what was only true really of the matter of the sacrament or the thing signified such an expression for example as blood in the chalice he admitted in a certain sense to be true but only by grace in a sacrament he clung to the patristic language and got into confusion and apparent materialism from doing so but there could be no doubt that he rejected any corporeal presence or efficacy in the mere rite. the grace of the sacrament he says is not included in it but to those that receive it well it is turned to grace jewel who alone besides hooker of the elizabethan divines can be said to be a systematic writer is equally if not more clearly rational in his sacramentarian teaching the bread and wine are with him in the usual language quote, the holy and heavenly mysteries of the body and blood of christ close quote and christ himself is received by them through faith he is present and given in them as he is present and given in his word but there is no singular or corporeal presence of him in the eucharist quote, it is not the bodily mouth but faith alone that receives and embraces christ's body close quote. two the question of orders was freely discussed and a whole catena of evidence might be adduced to show the liberal direction which for the most part the discussion took cranmer's opinions are well known he denied the distinction of presbyter and bishop and seems even to have questioned the distinctive character and independence of the sacred office altogether a priest he contended might be validly constituted by the supreme civil power in virtue of the authority committed to it and also by the people in virtue of their election footnote his words are quote, a bishop may make a priest by the scripture and so may princes and governors also and that by the authority of god committed to them and the people also by their election Close quote this is one of his answers to the famous series of questions propounded by henry the eighth to the bishops 
the questions and answers are to be found in burnett's history of the reformation volume one and also in collier's ecclesiastical history End footnote. jewel was no less erastian those who speak of themselves as being the only true church he compares to the scribes and pharisees who cried the temple of the lord the temple of the lord and cracked that they were abraham's children god's grace he added is not promised to seas and successions but to them that fear god Becken, a voluminous writer, who was chaplain to Cranmer, and the author of one of the homilies, no less explicitly denied the distinction between bishop and presbyter, and advocated the old practice of appointing ministers by popular election. While Hooker, in conformity with all the principles of his great work, maintained that, quote, there may be sometimes very just and sufficient reason to allow ordination made without a bishop, close quote. But apart from all such special testimonies, the liberal views of the Church of England in the sixteenth century on the subject of orders are notorious. The correspondence carried on betwixt Cranmer and Parker on the one hand, and the reformed divines on the other, prove beyond all reasonable controversy that the question of episcopal ordination was not regarded as a vital one on either side. There was a sense in which the foreign churches would not have objected to episcopacy, while the English bishops were disposed so to modify it as to meet their views. In short, the Church of England had, on this important point, reached in the sixteenth century an attitude more rational and more consistent at once with the spirit of Christianity and the facts of its origin than it has unhappily as a whole been able to maintain in the course of its history. 3. But the main point which then evoked and sustained the rational thought of the Church of England was that of the government of the Church, or the idea of the Church as an institution. What was this idea? Was it definitely fixed in Scripture, and the model or pattern of Church government formally laid down there? no was the distinct reply of the leaders of the church of england in the sixteenth century while strangely enough the affirmative dogmatic side was zealously maintained by the extreme reformers known thus early as puritans who had brought from abroad not only calvinian theology but calvinian presbyterianism there are two phases in this great struggle during the elizabethan age first the controversy betwixt cartwright and whitgift and secondly that betwixt travers and hooker which led to the composition of the laws of ecclesiastical polity nothing can be more clear than the attitude of both these distinguished representatives of the church of england whitgift is indeed an infinitely inferior genius and while his principles are conciliatory and his tone of argument moderate his language is often harsh and overbearing of his rational position however he leaves no doubt there is according to him no one certain and perfect kind of government prescribed or commanded in the scriptures to the church of christ and the only essential notes of the church everywhere are the true preaching of the word of god and the right administration of the sacraments the substance and matter of government must indeed be taken out of the word of god but the offices in the church whereby this government is wrought are not namely and particularly expressed in the scriptures but in some points left to the discretion and liberty of the church to be disposed according to the state of times places and persons Whitgift, in short, vindicates for the Church a rational liberty to order in particulars its frame of government according to the principle of expediency. He met the dogmatism of the Puritan, who could not understand a divine revelation which did not fix everything regarding religion to the minutest particular, by the simple assertion that, in point of fact, revelation had left such matters undetermined. Footnote. Quote, and it is no small injury which you do unto the word of god to pin it in so narrow room as that it should be able to direct us but in the principal points of our religion is it likely that he who appointed not only the tabernacle and the temple but their ornaments would not only neglect the ornaments of the church but that without which it cannot long stand shall we conclude that he who remembered the bars there hath forgotten the pillars here or he who there remembered the pins here forgot the master builders 
Should he there remember the besoms and here forget archbishops, if any had been needful? Could he there make mention of the snuffers to purge the lights, and here pass by the lights themselves? Cartwright's Reply to Admonition, 14.82. End of footnote. He encountered dogmatism by negation, and the sharp and pointed exposure congenial to his somewhat rough, if acute, sense and shrewdness. But he did little more. His mind, as the Lambeth articles show, was of that limited pseudo-logical character, which, while sound and rational on such a practical matter as that of church government, had yet no real power of thought or penetration of higher principles. It remained to Hooker to carry the controversy into a region of rational light and philosophic comprehension, capable of shedding illustration and a new life of meaning, not only upon the constitution of the church, but upon the whole sphere of theology. Hooker began, not from negations, but from a positive analysis of the primary and essential principles of all government. Granting, he virtually said, that divine laws are our only immutable guides in the ordering of the church, which was the Puritan postulate, yet laws are not divine merely because they are found in Scripture. All law, truly so, is no less divine as forming an expression of the original law or reason of the universe. Whether the law is revealed in Scripture or in the rational constitution of human nature makes no difference. Its sacredness is the same as springing out of the same fountain of all light and order. This unity of nature and life in Scripture, as all equally true, if not equally important, revelations of the divine will, lies at the foundation of Hooker's whole argument. It is the comprehensive and germinant idea underlying its entire structure and breathing form and meaning into it inarticulate sometimes, but not the less powerful. According to this idea, the Church of England, in the Catholic hierarchy of offices which it preserved, was defensible, not merely because it was there, and there was nothing in Scripture against it, but because it was in itself a fair, seemly, and rational order of government. It based itself on the divine reason, expressed in the national consciousness, and sanctioned both by the national sentiment and the course of Catholic history. In this, the higher sense, it possessed undoubted divine right. It was conformable to Scripture and the Christian reason, and had its origin directly in the growth and advance of this reason. The Church was to Hooker, in fine, no dogmatic or exclusive institution, as the Puritans would have made it, partitioning by formal lines and boundaries the cosmos of spiritual thought and experience which had sprung from the divine ideal in Christ, and in Him recreated and transformed humanity. It was a spiritual order, capable of diverse forms, and tolerantly comprehensive of all Christian gifts and activities. If the Church of England had never produced any other writer of the same stamp, it might yet have boasted in Hooker one of the noblest and most rational intellects which ever enriched Christian literature or adorned a great cause. In combination of speculative, literary, imaginative, and spiritual qualities, the Laws of Ecclesiastical Polity stand as a polemical treatise unrivaled. The same rich and ample intellect and the same calm and judicial wisdom shine through it all but especially in the first book, where the author rises to his loftiest flight of thought, and expatiates with the most sustained force and compass of reasoning. Nowhere in the literature of philosophy has ethical and political speculation essayed a profounder and more comprehensive task, or sought to take a broader sweep, and never has the harmony of the moral universe, and the interdependence and unity of man's spiritual and civil life, in their multiplied relations, been more finely conceived or more impressively expounded. The chief characteristic of the work is its elevated calmness of luminous and reasonable thought. Many writers are more acute, subtle, and forcible in detail, and reach their conclusions by more rapid, vivid, and close processes of logic. But no writer ever conducted a great argument in a higher, purer, and more enlightened spirit. 
none ever dwelt in a more lofty serene and truthful atmosphere or raised himself more directly by mere grandeur and largeness of conception above all the petty and vulgar details which beset controversy even on the greatest subjects the work remains an enduring monument of all the highest principles of christian rationalism of that spirit and tendency of thought which everywhere ascends from traditions or dogmas to principles and which tests all questions not with reference to external rules or authorities but to the indestructible and enlightened instincts of the christian consciousness End of chapter 2, part 1.